Today, uh, we're in Exodus chapter 20, so if you want to turn with me to Exodus 20, we're going to look at verses 1 to 21. If you like to follow along um, on your mobile device, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Okay, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. This is the reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we jump into God's word today. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. On this week that is all about gratitude and joy and family, uh, we also recognize that even as we gather here today, that there are so many in the world, particularly our brothers and sisters in the Middle East right now at this moment, for whom this is not their reality who have been displaced from their homes, who have been separated from their families, whose lives have been torn apart by war and violence. And so as much as we're thankful that we can gather here together this morning, we also weep with those who weep. And if there are any in this room who also come today with heavy hearts, with hearts that are grieving, we ask that this word would be a healing balm to their souls. We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, to give us a little bit of context, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at stories in the life of Moses, uh, this man who God appoints to liberate his people uh, who've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. But as we learned last week, there's a difference between being set free 
and actually living as free people. We said it takes four days to get Israel out of Egypt and 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Right? For generations, the Israelites have only known one reality. They only know how to be slaves. And they're carrying this trauma in their bones everywhere they go. And they can't even fathom that there's another way to live. Like I still remember the first time my kids begged me to pack them Korean food for lunch. And I was like, that, that can't be possible. You know, like, they, I, I was so confused. It was muscle confusion. I could not fathom a reality in which they would prefer pulgogi over grilled cheese or peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, I, I begged my parents to pack me Lunchables. I sometimes forgot my lunch on purpose so that my parents would have to leave work and bring me McDonald's, right? And now they're telling me, I don't just want you to pack me pulgogi. I want you to pack me enough so I can share with my friends, Right? And this is crazy to me because I realize, like, I still carry in my body this anxiety from my childhood. That, like, feeling every day when you're about to open your lunchbox and you're like, I know someone's going to say something to me about the smell. Like, every single day to go to school. And so I can't even imagine a reality. I can't even imagine this world that they're growing up in. And in the same way, the Israelites may be out of Egypt... But the shadow of Egypt still looms large. The shadow of Egypt still hovers over them. People who've ever been in a toxic relationship understand this, right? You can get out of that relationship, but oftentimes you will carry that trauma, you will carry that toxicity into the next relationship, right? You'll be with your significant other. They'll say, where are you going? And you're like, why? You don't trust me? And they're like, whoa, just, just wanted to know what your schedule was like today, right? And all of a sudden we react according to our past trauma. You see, when God takes his people into the promised land, before he does that, he has to deprogram Egypt out of them and teach them a new way to live. Not under the oppression of Pharaoh, but in the freedom of Yahweh. And so God gives them a new set of laws that are meant to define the terms of this new relationship, and he synthesizes all of these laws, all 613 or so of them, into 10 commandments. The first four dealing with our relationship with God and the remaining six dealing with our relationship with each other. As if to remind us that the two cannot be separated. They are inextricably connected. That you cannot say you love God and then turn around and hate your neighbor. That your vertical relationship must have an impact on your horizontal one. Now, obviously, the Ten Commandments could be its own sermon series, and at some point, I would love to do a whole series on this where I devote a, like a sermon a week um, to each commandment. But today, I want to zoom out a bit and talk about what the Ten Commandments as a whole represent about God and his relationship to his people. Now, whether or not you've grown up in the church or you're checking out church for the first time, is very likely you're already familiar with the Ten Commandments. And my guess is that, um, like me, many of us have a love-hate relationship with the Ten Commandments. Because many of us grew up in churches where, um, you know, that, that talked about the commandments um, and, and they were weaponized to produce a kind of religiosity that was more about following the rules than about living in a relationship, right? And as, a, you know, many of us in this room are Asian American, I'm an Asian American, we're really good at following the rules, we're actually far better at following the rules than we are at being in relationships. And so in the churches that many of us grew up in, 
These laws of God were used to shame people rather than liberate them. And so once we got out of these environments, we were like, you know what? Let's disregard the commandments altogether. Like we're more enlightened than this. We're not about the law of God. We're not about the rules. We're about grace. We want to be a shame-free zone, and we threw out the commandments altogether. But when you read the book of Exodus, right, like you realize, oh, there's something uniquely sacred about way, the way these commandments were given, right? And so we cannot just treat these commandments like general guidelines that don't have any real authority over our lives. And you might say, well, I do follow the commandments. Well, uh, let me ask you, I think many of us would agree that to murder is wrong. I think we would agree with that. I think many of us agree that probably stealing and lying is wrong, but what about keeping the Sabbath? What about honoring your father and mother? We just got back from Thanksgiving. I know there was a lot of dishonoring that happened over the week, right? And we kind of pick and choose which commandments we feel are good, which commandments we feel can be thrown out, which commandments are relevant for us today, and which commandments actually are archaic and outdated. But again, you realize when you read Exodus 20, we have to contend with these commandments because this is actually the only time in Scripture that we have the revelation of God, both spoken and written by God himself. In almost every other occasion, God speaks through a mediator. But here, he doesn't get Moses and he doesn't tell them what to tell his people. God gathers his people at the base of Mount Sinai and he speaks to them with his own voice. The way Exodus 20 opens is with God with all his people gathered around him. And the first, things that we, first thing that we read is, God spoke all these words. And then later when God puts this same law on tablets of stone, he doesn't get Moses to write it down. He doesn't tell Moses to transcribe it. We read that the law was inscribed by the very finger of God. So clearly God takes his law seriously, which is why we too must take his law seriously. And so what I would like to do today is to recover the beauty and the significance of the Ten Commandments because I believe they have been grossly misunderstood and misused. Now, the most important part of the Ten Commandments, in my opinion, are the words that precede it. The first words out of God's mouth are not, here are the rules I want you to live by. They are not, here is the first commandment. The first words out of God's mouth are, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. He wants to make it crystal clear that everything he's about to say has its basis in a relationship that has already been established. It is not this law that makes the Lord their God. It is not their obedience to these commandments that gets them into a relationship with God. They're already in relationship with him. He doesn't say, I am the Lord. He says, I am the Lord, your God. It's deeply personal language. He says, I am yours and you are mine. I rescued you not because you followed the rules. I rescued you before you proved yourself worthy to be rescued. God could have given the Israelites the commandments while they were in Egypt. He could have said, hey, when you leave this place, these are going to be the laws that you live by. But he doesn't do that. 
He waits until they're out of Egypt completely. In fact, he waits three months before he gives them the law so that there would not even be a sliver of doubt that their salvation was somehow contingent upon their obedience. The whole point was not about obeying God so that he could love them. It was about God loving them and then helping them obey. And no matter how many times I say this, this is one of the most difficult theological concepts to wrap our minds around because frankly, this is not the way many of us were taught to view God. Like you may say, yeah, I believe God's love is unconditional. Yeah, I believe it's not contingent upon my obedience. Look, we all have a professed theology that that's what we believed. But we also all have a functional theology. We have a way that we actually live. We have a mindset that we're actually operating by. You know, when people say like, Jason, I'm so sorry. I haven't been at church for a while. When they apologize to me or when they say like, I feel really weird coming back to church. I've been away for so long. I've been living this other life. I don't know if I can come back. I feel ashamed. I don't know if I actually belong there. I don't know if this thing is right for me. It always breaks my heart because I'm like, what kind of God do you think he is? Who do you believe God to be? And I realize that if we were to really examine our hearts, many of us see God in this way as punitive and distant and angry all the time because honestly, that's what many of us experience in our homes growing up. We were given rules by parents who at many times were altogether absent from our lives or we were given rules by parents who we perceived to be angry with us all the time. Even in church, many of us were given God's rules without the relationship. It was don't do drugs, don't watch porn, don't cheat, don't lie. Or conversely, it was read the Bible in one year and you'll get this prize. We got a list of do's and don'ts without the giver of that list. And because the rules were disconnected from the relationship, they just became these crushing burdens that led to more shame and more self-hatred. This was the issue with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They loved the law more than the lawgiver, so much so that they knew the law front and back. They added laws that weren't even there, while all the while forgetting who gave these laws to begin with. You know, I go online right now, and some of the worst vitriol, it's so sad because some of the worst vitriol is coming from Christians who know the law. They know a lot of theology and they go online and they weaponize the law to shame and condemn. And they use the Bible in a way that is literally the opposite of Christ-like. This is what it looks like to separate the law from the lawgiver. And so before you get into any of the rules, you have to begin with the relationship. I am the Lord, your God. You don't have to do anything to earn my love. There's nothing you could do to make me love you more, and there's nothing you could do to make me love you less. And if you can get this, if you can just trust this, it will change the way you view the commandments. I guarantee you this. The law of God will no longer be a back-breaking burden that crushes you, but a life-giving guide 
that protects you, preserves you, and draws you deeper into who God is, you will start to understand why David in Psalm 19 was able to say, the law of the Lord is more precious than gold, than pure gold, sweeter than honey, more than honey from a honeycomb. Now, obvious next question, especially for people in L.A. in 2023, is why do you need rules at all? Right? It's like, I talked to someone just checking out Christianity for the first time. Y'all have so many rules. There's so many things you're allowed to do and so many things they say you're not allowed to do. Why are there so many, so many rules? Isn't freedom the ability to do whatever you want without anyone telling you how to live your life? This is certainly how our culture would define freedom. Freedom from restrictions on my individual choice. Nobody here has the right to tell me how I should and should not use my money. Nobody has the right to tell me how I should and should not use my body. Nobody has the right to tell me how, who and, and when I can sleep with somebody. I decide what's good for me. Well, let me ask you, how's that working out for you? Are you really free? Is that what freedom looks like you know we have this small ukulele at home and my son jack who's five um he has no idea how to play it so he plays it backwards he turns it around and he plays the back of the ukulele without the strings okay and like it's the neck is upside down the strings are out of tune he's still trying to sing and i'm trying to show him how to play the ukulele properly he's like i got this dad get away from me i know how this works and i'm like it sounds bad it sounds horrible. My wife is like, bro, he's five, right? You know, I'm like, that's not the way it was meant to be played. Why are you playing it like that? And yet this is how we view freedom, living life without rules. Don't tell me what to do, not realizing that true freedom is living life the way it was meant to be lived. We call America the land of the free, but are we really free? Anxiety and depression rates skyrocketing. Suicide rates at an all-time high. Violence, corruption, racism, people working themselves into the ground. This is what freedom looks like to you? You see, the law of God was not meant to put us in bondage. It was meant to be an invitation to live in a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of king who unlike Pharaoh is good and loving and kind, who gives us rules not to restrict us, but to free us to enjoy and experience life the way it was meant to be lived. And when we ignore God's law, we're the ones who suffer. We suffer. Okay, I'm just going to take one of the commandments as an example, okay? And I'll take one that I know we've all violated, keeping the Sabbath, okay, the fourth one. Ironically, it's the longest one. Right? But it's the one we always dismiss. And this is so easy for me personally to violate because I was raised to believe that rest was for the weak. Right now, you go on my Instagram algorithm, everything is rise and grind. My schedule, I wake up at 3 a.m. I do a morning meditation while I'm on the treadmill. Right? And then I eat breakfast with my kids and we talk about life. And then I go lift weights for, weights for two hours. And then it's nine o'clock and my day begins. And I'm like, how do I live like this? This is. And this is what our culture is feeding us. And you know why the fourth commandment is so easy to break? 
It's the only one where you get rewarded for violating it. Right? Like, what do you get for sending emails 24 hours a day, seven days a week? What do you get for answering your boss, pulling all-nighters to make sure your boss is happy? You don't have anyone telling you to stop. You know what you get? You get a promotion. They tell you, you're doing a great job. You're superhuman. You're a beast. I can't believe, I can't believe, we're going to give you more money. We're going to give you more responsibilities so you can do more work. And when this is the culture, it is very hard to believe that this commandment, keeping the Sabbath, is for our good. And yet over time, you begin to feel it. It begins to take its toll on you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And the problem is you can't stop now because your identity is now too wrapped up in your work. It's too wrapped up in your ability to produce. And so now you're working at the expense of your mental health, at the expense of your relationships. You're more irritable and demanding because anyone who gets in the way of your work is an enemy. You see, friends, when God tells you to keep the Sabbath, it's not just an arbitrary law meant to restrict you or hold you back. It's the plea of a loving father who wants the best for you, who wants to free you from a narrative that has you enslaved, whose heart breaks when he sees that the things that define you are what you've achieved and the way that you perform and the hats that you wear. Every commandment is an expression of God's love. It's a reflection of his character and the things that matter to him. You know, I've been married to my wife, Carol, for going on 12 years. She also has many commandments, okay? In fact, she has more commandments than God, okay? She has like 75 commandments, okay? And um, commandments like, you know, you shall not uh, splash water around the sink when you wash your face. Uh, commandments like, you know, you should keep the music in the car below a certain decibel level. Commandments like, you shall always Google Calendar everything six months in advance, okay? At times, very oppressive, okay? Um, I, I couldn't look at her in the face during the first service because she was sitting right there. I just, I just looked straight, okay? <laughs> but I guarantee you, if I took a list and wrote all the commandments out, after reading the list, you would get a very good picture of my wife. You would know so much about her. You would know the things that matter to her. You would know she doesn't like noise. She doesn't like mess. She likes to plan and prepare. She likes to be organized. In the same way, God's laws are a reflection of who God is. And so when you read, you shall not steal, it was not meant for you to say, huh, I guess God just doesn't like stealing. No, that commandment is a window into who God is. And what that commandment is saying is that in my kingdom, you will not have to take from anyone because I'm a generous God who will give you everything you need. I know that back in Egypt, Pharaoh gave you scraps. So you felt like you had to hoard. You felt like you had to steal from people to get what was yours. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to live like that anymore. When you see the commandment, do not murder, it's not God just saying, murdering is bad. He's saying something about himself. He's saying, I know back in Egypt you were invisible. I know back in Egypt you were treated like your life had no value. You were treated like property and seen as expendable. He's saying, in my kingdom, every human life matters. 
Every human life is precious. And it grieves me to see people created in my image brutalized and dehumanized. You see, when you understand that these commandments are just windows into God's heart, it stops being about the letter of the law and more about the spirit of the law, more about who God is. We see this even in the New Testament when Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, Everyone was so in love with the law, they were like, well, I'm not violating the law. I didn't actually cheat on my wife, so I'm good. And Jesus was saying, if you even look at someone with a lustful heart, you've committed adultery. And he was trying to pull them out of the law itself to have them see the lawgiver. But now if that's the case, you and I, we have a big problem. Because if God is the standard... What hope do you and I have? We can barely keep the Ten Commandments as it's written, let alone now everything the commandments point to. It feels like an impossible task. And so as much as the laws of God are a mirror reflecting his character, they're also a mirror exposing our weakness. They show us what we're incapable of doing. In Exodus 20, as soon as God gives his people the commandments, we read that they trembled in fear and stayed at a distance. And they said, we don't want to hear from God anymore. Moses, you speak on our behalf now. We can hear from you, but we don't want to hear directly from God, lest we die. They were exposed. They knew they could not keep these commandments. In fact, they broke the commandments almost immediately after receiving them. The Israel, you have to understand, the Israelites, they heard with God's own voice amidst thunder and trumpets and a dark cloud that had descended. They heard God in his own voice say, you shall not make any idols. Moses goes up the mountain. They get impatient. And what's the first thing they do? They construct a golden calf. And the saddest part about this story is that after they've made the golden calf, They look at it and they say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. These are your gods. Can you imagine the heart of God as he watches them do this? How easily they forget, how easily they turn their back on the one who rescued them from slavery and act like he isn't even there. And is this not what you and I do every day? Live as though God didn't rescue us from slavery. Live as though God isn't worthy of our lives and our obedience. Live like we're still under Pharaoh. Do we not every day construct a golden calf with our money, our popularity, our appearance, our degrees, and say, these are your gods who have brought you out of Egypt. These are your gods who will save you and rescue you. Is this not what you and I do? But here's the good news. In the same way that the Israelites needed Moses to stand in the gap for them, God in his mercy sends a greater Moses to stand in the gap for us, who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. One who kept all of God's statutes perfectly. One who embodied the law in all of its beauty and fullness. One who showed us what a life of obedience looks like. When the Apostle Paul says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, he's saying in Christ we see everything the law points to. He's saying you want to know what God is like? 
Look at Jesus. You want to know how beautiful God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love neighbor as yourself? Look at Jesus. Jesus, who through his life, death, and resurrection brings sinners like you and me near to God. And not only does Jesus set us free, the Bible tells us he now lives in us so that we can live as free people through the power of his spirit. The law that was once on tablets of stone are now written on our hearts. And so it's not that we ever throw out the law of God. You know, I think a lot of young people, and I, again, like I think many of us who grew up in immigrant churches, right, it was so much legalism and there was so much, you need to do this, you need to do that, that we came to church and started gathering and we say, let's just throw the law out altogether. Forget the rules. It's all about grace. And yet it's not that the Bible ever throws the law out because it says the law is now written on our hearts. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. What Paul is trying to say is that our freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. Our freedom in Christ is an invitation to experience life as it was meant to be lived. Let me just close by saying this. I think for many of us, the biggest hurdle when it comes to the law of God is not that we don't know the law of God, especially to those of us, again, who've grown up in Sunday school, like you know the rules. But I think what we struggle with is believing that the law of God is good, that it's actually good for us. And when you've been enslaved for so long, even freedom can feel like bondage. And it is my sincere belief that the reason so many of us struggle to obey God's law is because so many of us struggle to receive God's love. And so my job today is not to try to get you to obey the Ten Commandments better. If that's what you walk away with, no, like, please don't. That is not the point of this sermon. My goal is not to get you in line or to shame you, or get you to follow the rules, or guilt you into sinning less. That's not even my job as a pastor. Everyone thinks my job is about helping people to love God more. No. My job is to stand up here every week to show you how much God loves you. To show you how much God loves you. To remind you every week that in Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Because I believe if we truly understood that, we could not possibly live the same.
And so the question for you today is not, how are you doing with obeying the commandments? The question for you today is, do you understand how loved you are? And what are you going to do now with that love? How are you going to respond to the reality of this love that is unimaginable, incomprehensible, unthinkable? Will you stay enslaved? Or will you let this love now shape you and mold you into the person you were called to be? Let's pray. As our worship team comes back up, I want to give us just a few moments to respond to God's word. And normally when you hear a sermon on the Ten Commandments, the logical response is, which of the commandments do you feel like you're breaking right now? And let's think about that and let's confess that. But I don't want to do that today. I want you to ask yourself, in what ways have you forgotten the love God has shown you? The love God has for you at this very moment. The way God has lavished his grace and his mercy and kindness upon you through his son. So let's just take a moment to sit in that. Gracious God, thank you for this word today. We recognize that behind all of the things we struggle with, behind our addictions, behind our bitterness, our unforgiveness, behind the brokenness we deal with on a daily basis, often is a prevailing narrative that has enslaved us. A narrative that says we're not loved a narrative that says we still have to prove ourselves. A narrative that says we have to get right before we approach you. But God, I pray in this moment that you would remind us that we're already loved. That because of Christ, life is death and his re resurrection. You have come near to us. And we pray that everything we do after that is simply a response to living in that reality. So help us, Holy Spirit, more than anything else, would you illuminate your love for us this afternoon. We love you. We thank you. We entrust our lives into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.